Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. I'm today's host, Daniel Chow, a gastroenterologist at the VA in Loma Linda, California. I completed fellowship at the University of California, Irvine, and residency at the University of Massachusetts. You can find my dog on Instagram at puttingthegoldendoodle, but not me. And now for our case. A 35-year-old male presents for his annual health exam. He reports a three-year-long history of burning, substernal, non-radiating chest pain that typically lasts for two to three hours. There is no association with dyspnea. The pain is not provoked by exertion or movement. He takes over-the-counter antacids when symptoms occur, which provide partial relief. On exam, the patient is a well-developed, obese male in no acute distress. Blood pressure is 132 over 80, and heart rate is 79. There is no jugular venous distension or carotid bruise. The chest pain is not reproducible on palpation of the costosternal junctions. The heart and lung sounds are unremarkable, and his abdomen is soft, non-tender, and non-distended. There is no peripheral edema, clubbing, or nail telangiectasias. A thorough history and physical, plus review of any available test results, provides the foundation of data used to analyze the problem list. Whenever the diagnosis is not clear, the first question that should be asked is, what is the differential? Chest pain is a red flag symptom, and providers should always consider life-threatening etiologies such as acute coronary syndrome, aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism, and pneumothorax. In this case, the timeline makes these diseases very unlikely, since these conditions do not persist for three years without causing clinical decompensation. Another supportive pertinent negative is the burning quality of the patient's pain. Aortic dissection is classically described as a tearing sensation, while pneumothorax typically leads to pleuritic pain. The patient's well score for pulmonary embolism is less than 2, indicating low probability for this diagnosis. Be sure to give pertinent positives and negatives their proper weight. For example, just because a symptom is not classic does not rule the condition out entirely. An evidence-based system, such as the Wells score, will have better sensitivity and specificity. It is always helpful to think through why a critically important diagnosis is unlikely, regardless of how low your initial clinical suspicion is, because the cost of missing such a diagnosis can be a fatal outcome for the patient. So how should this patient's chest pain be categorized? Although other causes of chest pain are more common, cardiac disease is a leading cause of death. A clinical criterion exists to characterize chest pain as either typical cardiac angina, atypical angina, or non-cardiac in nature. This characterization helps providers determine whether patients should undergo further cardiac testing. There are three criteria and symptoms that meet all three are considered typical cardiac angina. Symptoms that meet any two of the three are considered atypical angina, and those that meet none or only one criterion are classified as non-cardiac chest pain. The criteria are as follows. 1. Substernal location. 2. Pain triggered by exertion or emotional stress. And 3. 
pain that resolves with rest or nitroglycerin. Patients presenting with typical cardiac angina should have further history taken to determine if the angina is stable or unstable. Stable angina occurs predictably with exertion and is consistently relieved with rest or nitroglycerin. Unstable angina is either new onset, occurs at rest, or is becoming progressively worse or more frequent. Individuals with typical cardiac angina need to be risk stratified to determine their pretest likelihood of coronary heart disease. For those with stable angina and intermediate to high risk for coronary heart disease, it is appropriate to proceed with outpatient stress testing. Those suspected to have acute coronary syndrome, which includes unstable angina, non-ST elevation myocardial infarction or NSTEMI, and ST elevation myocardial infarction or STEMI, should be referred to a hospital for immediate workup. The management of atypical chest pain is similar to that of stable angina, beginning with risk stratification for coronary heart disease. If a patient is found to be at intermediate to high risk, exercise stress testing, cardiac biomarkers, and echocardiogram if there is also suspicion for structural heart disease are all proper follow-up tests. Our patient's presentation of substernal chest pain that lasts for two to three hours is not reliably provoked by exertion and is alleviated with antacids only meets one of the clinical criteria. Therefore, he can be categorized as having non-cardiac chest pain. Non-cardiac chest pain does not require further cardiac risk stratification. Instead, targeted history and physical can help determine the most likely organ system involved. Upon further discussion with the patient, he states that the chest pain occurs almost daily and is often triggered by large meals. He has symptoms at night when he lays down to sleep. The patient also notes occasional regurgitation that leads to burning in his throat and an acidic taste in his mouth. He denies any nausea, vomiting, hematemesis, melana, hematochesia, diarrhea, or constipation. So how does this new history change the differential diagnosis? In summary, a young male presents with non-cardiac chest pain, characterized as substernal burning that typically occurs in the postprandial period and when lying supine. Antacids provide some relief, and there are regurgitation symptoms with evidence of oropharyngeal acid exposure. Based on these findings, the most likely diagnosis is gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, which is a common cause of non-cardiac chest pain. Other symptoms that GERD can cause include dysphagia, globus sensation, chronic cough, hoarseness, and nausea. With our diagnosis established, let's review the pathophysiology and management of GERD. GERD occurs when the lower esophageal sphincter pressure is lower than that of the intragastric pressure. Therefore, conditions that lead to increased intragastric pressure such as obesity, pregnancy, gastroparesis, and stomach distension from a large meal will increase the incidence of GERD. Lower esophageal sphincter hypotension caused by certain foods like chocolate, medications, smoking, and neuromuscular degeneration also can worsen GERD, but this is not specific enough for diagnostic purposes. A key physiologic process leading to acid reflux events is transient, inappropriate lower esophageal sphincter relaxation, or TLESR. The lower esophageal sphincter is supposed to relax after a swallow to allow passage of the swallowed bolus through the gastroesophageal junction. A TLESR occurs when the lower esophageal sphincter relaxes on its own without a corresponding swallow.
Symptoms do not always correlate well with the number of events, so testing is not routinely required, and GERD is mainly a clinical diagnosis. However, if you are paradoxically excited about all of this, you may be suited for a career in gastrointestinal motility. Finally, because supine positioning reduces the effect of gravity that aids in the forward transit of gastric acid when upright, there is a significant decrease in acid clearance when we lie on our backs. Nocturnal GERD is also promoted by increased gastric acid secretion and decreased frequency of swallowing when sleeping. Individuals with symptoms at night have a higher risk of complications from GERD, and therefore it is important to ask patients whether they experience symptoms in the daytime, nighttime, or both. Lifestyle modifications should always be part of the management plan for GERD. This includes weight loss if the patient is overweight or obese, as defined by their body mass index. Several cohort studies have demonstrated improvement in GERD symptoms following weight loss, which could lead to less reliance on medical therapy. Those with nocturnal symptoms can elevate the head of the bed when sleeping. Multiple randomized controlled trials have showed improvement in GERD symptoms and pH values when the head of the bed was elevated. It is important that patients understand that simply flexing their neck by using multiple pillows is not sufficient. The legs at the head of the bed essentially must be placed on cinder blocks so that the angle of their entire upper body is 30 degrees relative to the floor. This is difficult to construct and can lead to covers sliding down to the feet, so early compliance with this recommendation was poor. There are now reasonably affordable wedge pillows that can provide the necessary tilt. Allowing the stomach to empty before lying down also has been shown to reduce nocturnal GERD, and the general advice for patients is to avoid eating within three hours of going to bed, though this should be adjusted for those who have delayed gastric emptying. Avoidance of trigger foods is also practical. So to summarize, the three evidence-based proven lifestyle modifications that have been shown to improve GERD symptoms include weight loss, elevation of the head of the bed, and not lying flat within three hours of eating. The latter two are strictly for nocturnal symptoms. Initial management of uncomplicated GERD with mild intermittent symptoms, mild defined as not interfering with daily life, include antacids taken at symptom onset and histamine 2 receptor antagonists or H2 blockers such as famotidine. The patient's response to treatment should be assessed after four weeks. If symptoms have not resolved, H2 blockers can be escalated to twice daily. For symptoms that persist despite twice daily H2 blockers, the H2 blocker should be replaced with a proton pump inhibitor, or PPI, taken once daily. PPIs can be escalated further in both dose and frequency if symptoms do not resolve. It is important to counsel the patient on the correct way to take their PPI to achieve maximal benefit. PPIs are prodrugs that undergo acid-catalyzed conversion to the active species. Thus, PPIs should be taken 30 to 60 minutes prior to food intake to ensure that the hydrogen pumps are working when the medication is at peak serum concentration. Lifestyle modifications should be reinforced at every visit. In the case presented, the patient has almost daily symptoms and failure of response to antacids, qualifying him as severe and frequent GERD. Therefore, he should be treated with PPI rather than H2 blockers. The patient is therefore started on omeprazole 20 mg once a day. Four weeks later, he endorses improvement in the severity of his acid reflux symptoms, but he still experiences chest pain every other day. 
He states that he read about GERD on the internet and talked to his physician friend, who recommends that he undergo an upper endoscopy. Do you agree with this recommendation? Upper endoscopy is not required in patients that present with typical GERD symptoms that resolve with medical therapy and lifestyle modifications. Endoscopy is indicated for symptoms that persist or are progressive despite medical therapy, specific alarm symptoms, and abnormal imaging of the esophagus. Alarm symptoms include, but are not limited to, evidence of gastrointestinal bleeding, unintentional weight loss of more than 5% of total body weight, dysphagia, odinophagia, persistent vomiting, and relevant gastrointestinal cancer in a first-degree relative. In these individuals, there is concern for complications of GERD such as Barrett's esophagus, esophagitis, esophageal ulcer, obstructing stricture or ring, and esophageal cancer. Barrett's esophagus is a condition in which the stratified squamous epithelium that normally lines the distal esophagus is replaced by metaplastic columnar epithelium similar to that found in the small intestine. Barrett's esophagus carries a 0.2% risk per year of disease of malignant transformation to adenocarcinoma. And the risk increases with long segment disease defined as 3 centimeters or more and development of dysplasia which is further classified as low or high grade. Management of non-dysplastic Barrett's is control of GERD with PPI and surveillance endoscopy. And management of most cases of dysplastic Barrett's is endoscopic ablation. Our patient had an incomplete response to omeprazole at the lowest dose and has nocturnal symptoms, but the next step is to increase omeprazole. The patient is escalated to omeprazole 20 mg twice a day. After four weeks, he returns for follow-up. He complains of new-onset, intermittent difficulty swallowing solid food. It feels stuck in the middle of his chest, and he has to drink a large amount of water to push it down. The patient now has dysphagia. An upper endoscopy is indicated because this suggests development of one of the aforementioned complications, such as a fibrotic stricture, muscular obstructing ring, or esophagitis. There is also a condition called eosinophilic esophagitis, which can exist concurrently with GERD and cause strictures and problem swallowing. There is nothing specific to suggest malignancy in this patient, but this needs to remain on the differential until proven otherwise. The patient undergoes esophagogastroduodenoscopy, or EGD, which reveals LA class C esophagitis. Biopsies are negative for eosinophilic esophagitis. There was no mass or stricture. Given this finding, his omeprazole is increased further to 40 mg twice a day. Reflux esophagitis is defined as erosions in the esophagus, which are superficial mucosal breaks. The severity of esophagitis is graded using the Los Angeles classification system. LA class A is the mildest form, and class D the most severe. An easy way to remember the progression from class A to D is that esophagitis begins with longitudinal erosions, meaning the break in the mucosal lining travels along the length of the esophagus. LA class A has longitudinal erosions that are less than 5 millimeters in length. When they become longer than 5 millimeters, the esophagitis is class B. Then, when the erosions begin to spread circumferentially, crossing mucosal folds, it graduates to class C. And if this involves more than 75% of the circumference, it is class D. 
Note that the presence or absence of ulcers, which are complete losses of mucosal integrity, does not change the class. An eight-week course of PPI at standard dose is the therapy of choice for symptom relief and healing of severe erosive esophagitis. Comparison studies found no significant differences in efficacy between the different PPIs. In this case, the patient developed esophagitis despite being on omeprazole 20 mg twice a day, which is why he was increased to 40 mg twice a day following the EGD. The patient returns after two months and is pleased to report complete resolution of his symptoms. He asks whether he needs a repeat endoscopy and whether he needs to continue taking omeprazole. He read some concerning literature about risks of osteoporosis and infection in individuals taking PPIs long-term, and this worries him. What do we tell him? Patients with LA class C and D esophagitis, remember, that means the erosions are spreading circumferentially and are the more severe forms, should undergo repeat EGD to confirm healing and exclude underlying Barrett's esophagus. It's very difficult to tell grossly whether Barrett's is present when esophagitis is severe, and histologically active inflammation can look like dysplasia. Individuals who have healed esophagitis on follow-up endoscopy and no evidence of Barrett's esophagus have well-controlled GERD symptoms and no concerning clinical changes do not require follow-up endoscopic evaluation. To address the question of whether long-term PPI is necessary, Evidence shows that LA class C and D esophagitis have a significantly lower healing rate compared to less severe disease, even with appropriate PPI therapy. There is also high risk for relapse if maintenance PPI is discontinued. Therefore, it is clear that this patient should take his PPI long-term. However, the PPI can be titrated down to the lowest effective dose. Unfortunately, as previously discussed, his current lowest effective dose is the maximum dose. Long-term PPI use has been associated with increased risk of Clostridium difficile colitis. It can also lead to hypomagnesemia and low vitamin B12 due to malabsorption. Additionally, there is a known association between PPI use and acute interstitial nephritis, as well as progression of chronic kidney disease. Although it is plausible that long-term PPI use is associated with decreased bone density and increased risk of fracture, Causality has not been established. All these potential adverse effects remain popular talking points, and given that many long-term PPI users are young and could be on the medication for decades, it is important to establish the risk profiles with larger studies. After this discussion, the patient agrees to continue taking omeprazole 40 mg twice a day a bit longer. You schedule a follow-up appointment to revisit this decision. At this visit, his symptoms remain well-controlled, and he is still concerned about long-term medication use and would like to learn about alternative treatment options. Do we have anything to offer him? Surgical management of GERD is usually only considered when a patient fails optimal medical management and lifestyle modifications. The most widely used surgical procedure for the treatment of GERD is Nissen funduplication in which the fundus of the stomach is wrapped around the distal esophagus to increase the pressure across the lower esophageal sphincter. The most common complication of Nissen funduplication is dysphagia caused by a wrap that is too tight. Most patients have a period of dysphagia postoperatively that may last months and may be severe enough to require a modified diet. 
Patients with dysphagia greater than three months postoperatively should be evaluated with a barium swallow. These patients may require endoscopic dilation or even a fundoplication reversal or revision to relieve these symptoms. One important fact that this patient needs to learn is that while surgical correction for GERD usually allows patients to stop their reflux medication, some people have a recurrence of symptoms that requires restarting PPI postoperatively. Fund application now can be performed endoscopically, a procedure called transoral incisionless fund application, or TIF for short. There are also specialized surgical and endoscopic techniques for constricting or scarring the lower esophageal sphincter, which are not used as frequently but may be available at academic centers. Last but not least, remember the most important and universal management strategy of GERD, lifestyle modifications. Obesity is a risk factor for complicated GERD. We'll write a happy ending here. So the patient's repeat upper endoscopy is negative for Barrett's and shows that his esophagitis has healed. He proudly reports successful intentional weight loss with improvement in his body mass index to 28. He still has not had any recurrence in GERD symptoms. Therefore, the decision is made to de-escalate his PPI, first to 40 milligrams once a day, and then to 20 milligrams once a day if there is no recurrence of symptoms. With continued weight loss and maintenance of a normal body mass index, the patient has a reasonable chance of not suffering a recurrence of erosive esophagitis. Hopefully, this was an interesting journey into the world of acid reflux and gastroenterology. This is Daniel Chow from VA Loma Linda, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.